Hey everyone, welcome to Shrink's Talk Shop, where psychotherapy experts share their thoughts with you. And you don't have to be a therapist to listen. First, a quote from this week's speaker, retired Judge Karen Mello. My son, who unfortunately is very ill, is almost 31. When he was a child, they wouldn't even acknowledge, the state of science was that no one would acknowledge that anybody under 10 years old could even be bipolar. So the best you could hope for is that some therapist or practitioner would say, your kid has ADHD. And, you know, as it turns out, I would have been happy if that were only, if it were only that. But no one's going to come to you and say, your six-year-old has schizophrenia. Just isn't going to happen. So you, so no one's going to come to the parent and say that. It's extremely unlikely. And I will uh, parenthetically say that I, this illness shows up in all kinds of terrible ways in very young children. When schizophrenia appears in early childhood, not only does the family struggle to cope, but also the family must grieve the loss of hope of normalcy at every stage of the child's life. We're speaking today with Karen Mello, a retired administrative law judge and parent of a schizophrenic child. Karen Mello has advocated for and spoken frequently on behalf of the families of schizophrenic children. Here she tells us with brutal frankness about what life with a schizophrenic child is like. As it happens, I have two children, one of them was colicky, and, and that looks like colic, which is a whole other terrible thing, but it's not mental, mental illness, it's physical. What it looks like in babies, if a baby is affected, is um, things like not, not meeting markers in, in development. So you wouldn't say the child is developmentally disabled. He's probably, in, in, as in many cases I've seen, really smart. Mentally ill people tend to be really smart, in, in, especially in the case of bipolar people. What you're seeing is he's not sitting up when he should. He's not crawling. He's doing something else. A personal example was my, my very young son, when, when he was in his crib, would roll instead of crawl. So roll from side to side for hours which didn't look normal, but I had no name for it. When he could walk, he would pick two spots in the room, and what my daughter and I came to call bouncing would bounce between them. So there would be this blur between, you know, in, in whatever activity we're doing. So eating dinner, trying to watch TV, trying to read a book, there'd be this activity and blur. Now, no doctor would even acknowledge that was a thing that could be diagnosed. It was just kind of quirky. But it's a terrible thing for the family because it's incredibly disruptive. So, you know, I know what it looked like for me. I know what it looked like for other people because they tell me. I'm not a mental health professional, but I read a lot. So I know there's current literature that confirms what I experienced in the sense that very young children have hallucinations. It's a precursor to the emergence of the schizophrenia. And they have hallucinations. And you say, for example... We're walking in tall grass in upstate Wisconsin, and my son says, look, there's a snake on the ground, and there's seven other people, including other children, and everyone goes, there is no snake. The state of the science is advancing at a really glacial pace. I don't, I don't know that I'd get much better treatment now, but at least, and when my son was very young, I could get a head start on people acknowledging he was mentally ill. And in the most extreme possibilities, you have other siblings 
who are in danger because the mentally ill child is out of control, is violent, is disruptive, is scary, is running away and, ha- and you've got the fire department and the cops in your house frequently. And in, there are instances, and unfortunately mine was one of them, where it was necessary for our wonderful practitioner, we had some good ones, this guy knew people who were affiliated with a place where my son could go and live. I mean, it was wrenching, again, wrenching pain is part of this, the subtext of all of this. But there was a period where he needed to be removed from the home, and he was at that point 12 years old. He eventually, we brought him home. He got, we got it under control. And then that, and then it got much, much worse because one of the things that nobody talks about is it changes. It's not the same two days in a row, and it's certainly not the same two years in a row. Your child grows. At some point, hormones kick in. And if you were to, as I have done, look at a room full of 10-year-old boys, five 10-year-old boys, 10-year-old boys all look crazy. I would defy you to pick out the one who's mentally ill. So some of this is parsing out what is mental illness and what is just normal craziness of young children, boys and girls. Girls have their own separate kind of crazy. I concentrate on boys because that's, that's where my difficulty lay. But eventually, his younger sister was so troubled by all of this, she had problems of her own. And it was our experience throughout, in the hospitals, the social workers, all of that, that we would go for something that purported to be family therapy, and they would talk about how to help the mentally ill person. And nobody ever looked at either one of us and said, you must be really suffering. And that would be my first suggestion, acknowledge that this is global, that it's not just one person, it's everybody involved. Everybody who cares is deeply troubled. So, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. What else you got? (laughs) (laughs) Well, what about uh, the health of the caretaker? It's so draining. Well, well, yes, it is. So you have, as I've described, a situation that changes day to day, minute to minute. You may have someone in your house who's manic and never sleeps. If you are a person who's supporting a family, you have a full-time job. And maybe you commute downtown or somewhere and, and, and maybe every day that you're at work, you're afraid because you know school's going to call you because it's the school is the front line of this. You know, in, some, in our case, we heard it first from the daycare. But, you know, daycares just kick your children out. How do you go to work? You go to work and they call you and they say leave. And your boss says, I'm going to fire you if you keep on leaving. How do you cope with that? We're in the middle of an interview with Karen Mello. And I'm Barbara Alexander from Shrinks Talk Shop. And this episode of my podcast is taken from my recent interview with her. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, what about the educational planning? Yeah, well, all right. Sometimes the school system volunteers help, but most times you find that it's vaguely or overtly um, adversarial. And that is because in a classroom with, let's say, 32 children, your kid is disrupting everybody. So the school's first impulse is to kick him out. If you're lucky, he won't get expelled as a behavior thing, as a a behavior problem. If you're lucky and you live in a a, a particularly a a place that can offer services, that has the money in their tax base, 
that has the enlightenment to know that they should offer services. This is not just a behavioral issue. They may refer your child to special ed, sometimes off-site, so you have a new set of problems. Now your kid is being pulled out and singled out, or your kid is being picked up by what everybody refers to as the short yellow bus, and now he's now he's officially not normal, which is a whole other set of problems. Now, at some point, I agreed with the school, but I, as you know, I'm an attorney, so in not in my professional capacity as girlfriend to other people. I went into districts not my own, and the school system didn't have the money to support special ed or special services or not the inclination. And then you have a fight. And then there are attorneys whose entire practice is something called school law, where they where you have to get someone to go represent you in the school so that the school is, understands that there are federal and state laws that require them to provide services for people with developmental disabilities and mental illness. My son was in three of those facilities. Again, they were labeling him behavior disorder. Of course, he didn't have a behavior disorder. He had monsters in his head yelling and screaming at him, but no one knew that. He was drawing pictures of them, and we just thought that was disturbing, but no one called that schizophrenia, or no one called that um, manic. What they were so he was kicked out of two of those schools. Eventually, he got to one that was affiliated with a hospital. And even they couldn't really contain him because part of his issue was he wasn't sleeping. So they had a rule. If you can imagine this, they had a rule you can't sleep in school. Well, you're up all night or three days in a row being manic. You go to school, your head's down on your desk, and you're sleeping. And this school, a special ed school outside the regular district, would call me up and say, you have to get your kid because he's sleeping. So in the end, I would say that what help there is available is good for some people, not for all, but it's better than leaving him in the classroom or worse, having your child evicted from school as a troublemaker, which is what unenlightened school districts do. Because now you have a kid who internalizes that, who hears you're bad, who hears you're flunking or your trouble. And those are the children who, by early teens, are taking drugs, uh, exhibiting very risky behavior, or who kill themselves. So this is what's going on all through the child's childhood. There's medication issues. Well, the medication issues are another source of horror, because you will go to a pediatric psychiatrist or some MD who will hand you a pill and say, give this to your child and see if he has any side effects. Well, how do you go to work and do that? How do you get the school to watch your child and see if he's having side effects? If And, and incidentally, very few of these are tested on children. So they're taking meds that were tested on full-grown adults and prescribing them maybe at reduced dose for children and, and waiting to see what happens. And sometimes what happens is really terrible. So sometimes I could give my child a pill and he would change in front of me and become a character out of The Exorcist. Sometimes he would just sleep for six months. Um, sometimes the side effects were so terrible, as in the case of lithium, which is notorious, that it months went by before my daughter finally pointed out to me that every morning I was putting the pills next to his breakfast and going to dry my hair so I could get to work. 
And every day for months and months, he was throwing those pink pills under the stove. So there were hundreds of them under the stove. So he was not taking his meds because the side effects were so terrible and he had no way to articulate that. So the tremor in his hand and and, and for him, the inability to draw when he's an artist, um, the heart palpitations that you get as a side effect of some other things, the fainting, the uh, dizziness, all of that, it, as bad as it is for an adult, imagine that on a child's body. So there, the state of the science is not really advanced. It's sort of try to see what happens. And, and it becomes the responsibility of the parents to monitor that, to say, I'm not going to give this pill to my kid anymore. I can't wait till we see the doctor again. Or let's go. How do you know if you give it more time or if it's, an, or if it's terrible? How do you know? I learned, but how would a parent know if they're going to withdraw a pill that it has to be done gradually? So um, the state of insurance right now is that child goes to a psychiatrist for what's a what's billed as a 15-minute med check. All the rest of that is unspoken. In 15 minutes, there's not much to do besides say, how's it going, and write a prescription. So where are you supposed to get that information? I got it on my own. I'm very highly educated and motivated. But for most people, this is truly impossible. See, there are people that say that non-medical therapists really shouldn't be involved at all and, and aren't, that everything is handled through the psychiatrist, maybe through the team if they're hospitalized, but as outpatients, well, it's just uh, up to the psychiatrist. The therapists aren't equipped to handle this. People are coming to you and they're not saying my child is mentally ill. What they're saying is, my kid took a hammer and smashed up the kitchen counter. My kid ran away from home repeatedly. What they're coming in and they're saying to you is, they're, they're not reporting a diagnosis. They're reporting events. And that collection of events may eventually lead to a diagnosis, but that's not how they're presenting to the therapist. If you're a parent and you come without the child, what you're saying is, I think I hate my kid. Or truly, I want to leave home. Or more typically, I feel really isolated. Because all the other parents are talking about soccer and, and you know ballet practice. And I'm talking about med checks and putting locks on the window so my kid can't climb out and run away again. I can't have a conversation with normal families anymore. And now, I, since most families are couples, I'm suddenly on my own here. So there's no one for me to talk to. And I need a therapist. I need somebody to talk to. And when you go to that person, what happens? Well... Not much because the, well, honestly, because the classic case is, tell me how you feel about that. Um, does it say something? It, it, the model of therapy doesn't work here. It's got nothing to do with my, what in my case was a pristine childhood. I was like a Coke commercial. I was all good. Um, I was, I, I had a loving family. I had a good education. I had wonderful friends. But when I went to the therapist, they would say, um, you should do something for yourself. Go get a manicure. Well, that's absurd. <laughs> I, I'm already paying for a babysitter so I can come see you, the therapist. And I'm paying with money I do not have because I can rarely go to work. And 
I can't relax to get a manicure. Who's watching my child? There's no babysitter that can watch this out of control person. That is not helpful. <laughs> Acknowledging the situation in itself is nice, but not enough. Is that what you're saying? No, no. In my experience, it is not enough. And I, I'm actually, what I'm suggesting is a whole other model for family therapy. And I know that's outside the scope of this discussion. But, no, what I'm saying, no, but, but what I'm saying is you're not helping the mother of a desperately sick child with a, who's also taking care of other siblings and trying to provide some semblance of normalcy. You are not helping by taking 45 minutes to say, um, what can you do to better organize your day? That is not helpful. My day is by definition disorganized. So if you want to be helpful, tell me who to call, where to go. Tell me, tell me that you know a better psychiatrist because the one I'm working with is indifferent or prescribing badly. Tell me, tell me my array of choices. Let me give a concrete example. Okay. You have a kid who's running away from home. It does not help you to ask me how I feel about that and can I love him anyway or any number of questions that, a, that a, in an ordinary circumstance a, a therapist might ask. Say to me, go get a cell phone with GPS in it. Go get one with a, with a finder app so you can find your kid. Say to me, um, go find a phone carrier that itemizes the bill so you can know who your teenager is calling. You can see what numbers are called and who's calling your kid. Give me some practical advice because I don't have an imaginary problem. I have a real problem and I need real solutions. On next week's episode, we'll hear what Karen Mello has to say about the issues that parents of young adult schizophrenics run into. So let's hear a bit. All right, well, to switch a little bit, what happens after the child gets a little bit older? Let's say after 18. Okay, well, that's, that's a whole other catastrophe. And this is, this is what the law says. And I have had people who should know better say this out loud to me. And I mean police, um, hospital personnel, attorneys. This is what they will say to you. The state of the law is, that on the day your child turns 18, he is an adult. And if your child chooses to live on the street and starve, that's his business. And there's no way you can intervene. That was Karen Mello, and I'm Barbara Alexander. I hope you'll join me next week for our next podcast. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ungoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening. Thank you.